0: Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity and wellness approaches. My name is Dale Park and I'm the Regional Advisor for Diversity and Wellness across East Metro Melbourne. Today I'm joined by Deb Benger who is the Senior Manager in the Allied Health Team at Access Health and Community. On today's episode I'll be talking to Deb about the approach her and the team have taken in response to COVID-19, and how they ensured there was a safe, responsive, and continuous delivery of service for clients. So thanks for joining us today, Deb. And I guess starting off, could you take us through the initial response that you and the team had to COVID-19 and what things you had to put in place?
1: The whole access response to COVID-19 was reasonably quick, but what the first thing that happened was that uh, one of our executives, David Toll, who's the general manager of health promotion, who was a paramedic originally by trade, um, was taken off his portfolio and put in charge of the organizational COVID-19 response. So that it has been his sole responsibility for the duration and still is. Our organisational response has been very much taking into account Department of Health and Department of Health and Human Services guidelines, but particularly Department of Health and Human Services, given we are in Victoria, um, and creating a very aligned response. So it's been a very, uh, there's been a lot of rapid response, but very calm and organisational-wide, rather than things blipping up the whole time um so right down to the fact that the uh we have a briefing all senior management has a briefing from exec every thursday on teams between 11 and 12 and then i then meet with my own managers to feed through to feed through to clinical staff so it's the feedback from the staff point of view is that it's been a very uh calm rational organized period so even though we at the senior management level might feel a bit like it's like, I'm like, oh my God, this changed, this change this change For the staff, it's, it has been changes, but very calmly rolled out.
0: So just take us through, I guess, those initial first moments. What were the first things that you really realised were needed and what did you have to put in place?
1: So we realised very, very initially that we were largely going to need to close down face-to-face services, at least in that initial period. So the advice coming out was that we really needed to shut down and protect the, the, those that would be vulnerable from doing badly with a dose of COVID um, to protect our health system now of course in community health that's probably the majority of our
0: clients
1: (laughs) Mm, Um, because we're not treating largely very well athletes with a sprained ankle Mm. so we really had to shut down face to face so um it was uh the initial response was to develop a the first decision tree that was developed was around being able to identify a client that was at more risk of deteriorating and requiring further health service intervention if they weren't seen face to face so could we manage them by uh, deferring their appointment could we manage them with a phone call did that, what sort of technology did they have available or you know they've got a really a, a wound on their foot that's not looking fabulous and actually they would be at real risk of hospitalization but where the decision tree where they were having their partner bring them into the clinic for dressings and monitoring the risk of pulling that person out of their house probably at that stage didn't stack up. So we needed to flip all our diary structures to allow our our therapists to be doing more home visits for the high-risk clients that really it wasn't um, safe or making sense to get them to come into um, a waiting room, particularly at our Richmond and Hawthorne clinics where they also share the space with the GPs.
0: Wow, so it really sounds like you changed quite quickly really the model of service that you were working with
1: really flipped our whole idea of service models and um, to really start to think, okay, what's the safest thing for the client as well as the staff member? Obviously, then we had to do our staff risk profiles. So people that are pregnant, you know, we've got staff members um, that was pregnant that also had gestational diabetes. It's probably not going to be putting that staff member in front of a whole lot of people or sending them out to do home visits, what can be done, from home or from online so in the within about a week virtually everybody had except for essential clinical services had moved to working from home the massive undertaking it wise um, lots of ordering webcams to make people able to do video consulting
0: yeah it's not just as simple as leave office, work at home. There's a lot of things that need to be put in place for that to happen effectively and safely. I'm curious also, I guess, about those clients coming in to receive a service. Having really clear and good screening questions around COVID symptoms was really important. Could you talk us through what you did there? Now the
1: standard way the COVID screening questions were being asked was interesting. And within the first 10 days, we had two incidents, one in the GP practice and one in the dental practice where the client had answered was English speaking and had answered no to all the COVID screening questions and then walked in and sat down in the clinic chair with um, sneezing.
0: I'm curious, were you able to find out why they answered no still had some symptoms and thought it was okay to come into the clinic?
1: The answer was, oh, yeah, but I'm not here to see you about that. And so that was a really kind of high-risk thing. Okay, we've got all uh, the people that do need to be, that are making the cut to need a face-to-face consult, but coming in and not answering those questions, honestly, is a really big risk to everybody. So we actually sought some external assistance to develop values-based messaging. There's quite a lot of work went into how we ask our COVID questions and we and we have a much more values-based messaging um, that, that applies to that about, you know, this is to keep you and our community safe. It is really important that you answer these questions honestly. We had photographs of our clinicians put up, you know, to keep me safe and you safe. So quite a quite different. And then we sent it off. Uh, to Polaron and got that messaging translated in the spirit that it would be as well as the language into our five most common called languages and then we pulled it back in and gave it to staff who are native speakers of those languages and got all the yes that's okay so um that that's been printed out as well as um Able to be verbally handed over, but also printed sheets where they can read through if they're literate in their own language. So that was a big learning in the in the first bit that yep, it's not just about routinely asking. And the scripting is very tight. These staff are not allowed to say things like, "Oh, look, I'm sorry, I have to ask you this" or whatever. It's about really putting it front and centre. This is really important for the health of you and our community. You need to answer these questions honestly. No fluffing around the edges. Since then, we haven't had any incidents of um, people arriving, but I have heard of them elsewhere and we've been very happy to share those sheets and and messaging where people have been in contact with me.
0: I think it's really refreshing to hear your approach and the way in which you used values-based messaging. It's really important to to think about what's going to respond to people effectively. And I think that also connects in with your approach to ensuring that people who have a language other than English could understand the questions, could read the questions, could be part of it, and not just simply getting it translated, but then ensuring that it was an accurate representation with your staff who have those skill sets. I think that's really key. I guess one of the things leading on from your process through screening into service delivery is... How did you make those decisions on who needed to see a clinician face-to-face?
1: Our clinicians were doing the calls to clients to do the triaging of who really did need a face-to-face consult, who we could space out to wait for longer. Um, And potentially that might be, you know, okay, we can check in in a month and see where this COVID landscape's going, but we can put in some wellbeing checks in the meantime versus, no, actually, we need to see you face-to-face. Okay, do you need seeing... Can you come into the clinic? Is that not a safe option? Do we need to come to you?
0: Mm -hmm. So it's obviously, as everyone who's been working in this space is very aware, it's a very complicated, really detailed, orientated process as well to be safe and to make sure that service delivery still happens. I'm interested in thinking and learning from you about how you utilised your volunteers during this period and if there were any issues or concerns with the volunteer workforce that that had been expressed to you
1: we have a large volunteer staff but most of our volunteers were over 70 and therefore not making the cutoff for coming to work so we could use some of them for phoning but largely our volunteers wanted to take a break Mm. Um, Mm. and that's perfectly fine and we didn't have the facilities to set them up all with computers and that sort of thing at home. So we're back down to largely our core staffing. So the AHAs, Allied Health Assistants, from all the different areas were really pulled to start to do wellbeing checks and ascertaining what facilities our clients had to engage with. Could they engage by telephone? Did they have a smartphone and they just didn't know how to use it? Um, so what um, they, they were sort of doing the wellbeing checks and also starting to scope what, what our clients had available.
0: I think we can all understand the volunteers wanting to take a break during this time. Obviously, your staff were really able to step up and step into different roles and taking on those well-being checks. I guess I'm interested, you started to talk about the technology. Was there any feedback or any consistent themes that your staff were seeing in relation to clients and either their use of technology or how they understood technology?
1: We found, even though some of them had a smartphone or a computer at home, largely they couldn't use it for more than email, Mm,
0: mm. if it
1: was a computer, and for the phone, largely not more than SMS. Even though their devices had the capability to do more, they didn't. And the other bit that sat alongside that was for a lot of our elderly clients, they were self-isolating from the family members that normally would have been able to help them connect
0: on those platforms. You mentioned that, the clients were self-isolating from people who would normally help them to utilise their technology. Was there anything that Access were able to do to support people while they were at home to understand how to use their technology and fully utilise it?
1: working very closely with my senior manager in community who runs you know the community houses and things and we got some of her clients and her 90 year old mother as test cases and developed some written sheets or printable sheets that could be either emailed or mailed out on how to connect to teams how to download a teams app and connect to teams And then our AHAs would either mail or email those out and then contact the client and walk them through. Sometimes that would take 90 minutes to talk someone through just how to connect and a lot of very patient working with the client. But by the end of all that, we had I think 40% of our clients able to access us on a video, which was phenomenal.
0: That's a great result. What sort of programs have you been able to deliver through an online medium? And what have been your takeaways from this?
1: We've been running online exercise classes, lots of online consulting, but it it was very, it's very time consuming. But we'll certainly keep that and keep developing it. One of the takeaways is that uh, once the clients were set up, they a lot of them could really engage with the video consulting, but the lack of devices and lack of ability is rampant throughout the um, socially disadvantaged um, population over 70. And I, I think that moving forward from a government perspective, we really need to, you know, the CHISP came out and um, made some allowances for people to be able to purchase devices. And then there's the Be Connected program that's available. Uh, you know, if I, if I could have a voice at government level, that would be my voice, is that, you know, these people uh, can benefit so much from, from this sort of um, interaction, but we really need to empower them to be able to do shopping from home, to not, you know, to
0: interact socially from home. I think you've touched on something really key there. It's not just about access, which we know is really important and these additional funds to provide equipment and things like that is is key, but the empowering of individuals to feel comfortable to use technology and to see it as a value and not something that's unattainable I think is really key.
1: I think COVID has really shown up where we're heading as a as a society, with the differences between the have and have-nots. People that have not only might not only be financially or other reasons have not, they are, they may be education have not, capacity to, to engage with new things and have someone support them through that have not. Um, so it's, it's um, I think, really shown, shown that up.
0: I think you're right. I think it's really important that these are the sorts of, issues and potential vulnerabilities that we look out for so we can truly support individuals and communities. Have you been able to identify groups or communities who are at greater risk because of previous or a lived experience of inequality, discrimination or marginalisation?
1: One other thing that we found was really interesting was with a number of our call cool clients who were taking their advice from media in their home country. We've got quite a huge, our call cool populations include a lot of Chinese and Italians and, um, and then we discovered some, you know, really at need things. So people that were completely self-isolating that weren't accessing any of the DHHS stuff in their own language because they're not online um they're online is i'm looking at my chinese television news on the tv in the morning um or my news from italy and um we had some cases where they had cancelled everything so one of the ot's uh one of our uh, clients in uh just a crazy story in richmond she uh got out there they the woman still travels back to China every second year, which is where her respiratory system, uh, physician resides. Her oxygen cylinders were faulty. Um, she had cancelled all community services, self-isolated, cancelled Meals on Wheels, cancelled everything, thinking she needed to completely self-isolate and was really deteriorating very, very rapidly. Um, and so that sort. Sort out of um getting her proper oxygen getting her meals on wheels reinstated all that sort of stuff was a massive massive task but we did find a lot of call cool clients taking advice from their home country media unsurprisingly that well they're not going to search the dhhs website you know they couldn't how would you navigate through it if you don't speak english you can't navigate through those websites the the government websites to find what you need. Someone else has to find it for you. Um, so that was probably an observation is that we we really need almost websites and stuff that, are, that you can access by typing the stuff in in Mandarin or Italian and it's going to pop up for you.
0: Access to information in your own language that you can understand and knowing where to find it and how to find it is so key. And I think that's really coming to light, even more so in such a situation as COVID, we really need to ensure that we can communicate with our clients and that we can get messaging to them that's actually relevant to them and that they can understand. I'm interested in a bit of a timeline. What was that time period that it sort of took you to to get these things done?
1: I guess that's the, that was the first two weeks. It was a pretty massive journey, but um, that's where we got to. The initial sort of two weeks was like full on, just get everyone from home, sort out how we're going to manage these clients, how we support them in the in the very acute kind of need space as time's gone on what we've done is developed quite a lot of resources so um, there's the well-being checks that are going on that are also for clients that can't engage online we developed tailored you know if they've been coming to an exercise group we developed sheets for them and started sending them out packs of theraband and things like that so that they could still keep doing their exercise programs in their homes um, and got feedback from them on either printable or mailable. We were emailing or, or there's still a lot of clients we had to print and send. Um, so printable resources for this this demographic are still important um, and lots of pictures and diagrams and things to send to them on, on how to manage at home to sort of, and then getting the AHAs to do the wellbeing checks just to keep the contact going. That was really important. Um, I think the other side of it, though, is that what we've realised is that for someone that, who perhaps has got a cough or a sneeze or a sniffle or whatever in future that wants to do their exercise class, that hopefully we'll be able to have them involved online, not come in and, with their sniffle, but not stop the program. So if they're, they're well enough, they can still keep doing some exercise, but not well enough to come in. Um, that, will, that will be something that will take further forward, I think.
0: I think that provides great flexibility for clients to be able to do those exercises online, potentially even into the future. If you could just talk us through those online classes, were they done live with someone or were they watching A pre recorded video that was up on YouTube, for instance.
1: No, 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 live. So we've got, so that was a big change. So, whereas you normally might have, say, 10 people in a class, you can't do that on Teams. And even if you can do it on Zoom, I guess that's another learning is that if you're running a a class for a lot of people with uh, older people with balance issues, chronic, chronic complex disease, It's not possible for a clinician or even an AHA or whatever to be viewing 10 people on your screen properly and run that class. So, one of the things with running the online classes, they're live in time, um, but we can only really, the clinician can only manage four people. So, all our boardrooms got commandeered. So, basically, we identified all the big spaces that had a large screen in our organisation And they were all cleared out for the exercise space so that the clinician running the exercises can actually have a very large screen
0: in front of them to see the four people that are joining them on the class. Having those small online classes being live, I guess, not only allows the clinician to connect with the client, but also ensure that they're being safe as well while they're doing it. I'm just wondering if there's any feedback, whether it's anecdotal or formal feedback that you've had from your clients.
1: Well, I've, got, I've collected some client stories around all the things we've done and I've got a really lovely one about um, one of the women who um, was able to join the online exercise classes and just a um, really nice sort of story about how that impacted not just her physical ability to keep going but her mental health
0: It's so great to have those client stories and to be able to share them not only with us and the rest of the sector, but with your own staff, because they're the ones working day in, day out to really achieve these positive outcomes. Thinking about the way in which you've had to get messages to your staff about the change that's happened, what are some of the things or the systems that you put in place to really facilitate that?
1: Yeah, we've had to put together quite a lot of resources for our own staff to alleviate anxiety and staff about, because um, it was all very easy to move everyone from home, but um, our staff, like our podiatry teams, who are very used to infection control, what, it, what, an, what an airborne precaution is versus the standard droplet precaution versus don't need any PPE at all, they were largely very comfortable with yep, who you see face-to-face, what you need, what the risks are, what doesn't stack up. Um, but for other staff like OTs and things who are not perhaps used to that and have only really worked in community all their life, actually getting them to go back into the homes and go back and to do face-to-face, there's a really high degree of anxiety. So we've had to develop really clear... Um, Guidelines around PPE with the whys and why you use this and why you use that. Um, Accessing found some really good video education that was Australian and made on donning PPE, how to check if an N95 mask is fitting properly and and safe. But then also our GM of uh, health promotion, who's the COVID safe, has made a um, basically a podcast on decision-making in PPE and donning doffing PPE designed for people who are not used to managing PPE. And the other thing that we've instituted that got instituted fairly early, I should have probably mentioned in it, is with, with the entire staff moving to having Microsoft Teams, our physio team, our OT team and whatever, have a morning huddle each morning and would go through a Q&A. So one thing that we have rolled out for COVID-19 that will be an ongoing just business as usual for the organisation is how to roll out a new process. So how to roll out a new process now looks like there is a very well-researched position statement, policy and procedure written. That's rolled out in written format and followed up with Microsoft Teams huddles. So around the PPE and that sort of guidelines and how we select who needs to be seen face-to-face or who doesn't, that was rolled out as a written document. But then in the following week, I timetabled five 10-minute Teams Q&As. So I put them at things like 8 in the morning, 12.30, 4.30 in the afternoon. So different people could dial into whenever the Teams meeting suited them and ask their questions and clarify things. So I've had Teams Q&A with our reception staff and Teams Q&A with our intake Teams about explaining the why's behind things because when people understand the why that empowers them to then take that knowledge and apply it to different things rather than just a list of the hundred new rules you need to follow for COVID is not very helpful that I think has been a real positive in that I don't we will never go back to rolling out a new policy and procedure on anything with just an email notification of
0: please read Uh, You've touched on something very dear to my heart there, Deb, policy implementation. I think it's so key that we actually support staff to understand policies and then how to implement them. And I think what you've described there is a really good process of ensuring that people know about the policy and know how to implement it.
1: We need shorter, more frequent meetings to be able to communicate because there's lots of change in the sector. The change is not going away. COVID-19 was a big change. But change in the health sector is is the new norm
0: and had been various changes that have been rolling out for years. There's not only been a lot of change for staff working in this space, but the services that clients receive are being delivered differently. Have there been any positive outcomes that you've seen for clients?
1: People that see the podiatrist for routine nail and foot care that they can't completely do themselves have we just have not been able to engage with them into doing any self foot care to space out the need for visits. It's, you know, we acknowledge that no, they're never actually going to be able to completely care for their own foot either due to physical limitations or, you know, various things, but, and diabetes people that need to definitely be having an annual foot check, all those sorts of things, but we've never been able to get them into engage in doing anything for themselves. COVID offered us that opportunity. Suddenly, some of those people had realised it was more dangerous for them to be wandering into a clinic and seeing someone than staying home. And so what our pod team did during that time, and we weren't able to get a lot of people to use it without instruction, but they've created some self-care packs with things like long-handled files and emollient cream and in really clear instruction sheets on how to, how people can their nails use cream do whatever to actually care for their own feet it won't eliminate the need for the podiatrist but it can space out the time between appointments and give people a bit of self-control over that so that was a really positive thing to come out so now what we're doing as people come back more face to face is they will have a podiatry appointment maybe to do the foot care followed by 20 or 30 minutes with an AHA to teach them how to use the self-care pack in between times to start to space it out. And if we go into lockdown again, or if you're unwell, this is how you can manage your own foot right through to even how to apply a basic dressing. If we're going to space out the visit between the district nurse and the podiatrist. So not just the low risk, obviously you wouldn't get complex dressings and things, but just simple stuff.
0: It's great that you were able to engage a group of clients who traditionally have been difficult to get to engage in self-care. Have there been any barriers or challenges to this approach?
1: Finding really clear diagrams and images that we can be licensed to use was really difficult and there's not a lot of even podiatry resources you can purchase but if you start to look at Shattercock and some of those things it can get very expensive if you if you're trying to license those images for the sort of use we would want so then it's looking at what capabilities have you got in your staff and one of our physios moonlights is a cartoonist So I approached this staff member about whether he would be willing to do some cartooning for us, which he was. So he's actually been doing some of the, you know, the podiatrists have been working with him about the sort of pictures that we need for our clients. And and Thomas has been mocking up the cartoons and then we've been running it past the clients. And so that's been a nice experience on a number of levels. He's loving doing it. Um, But sort of starting to recognise the different, capacities your own staff have that you're not capitalising on.
0: Being aware of our staff's skill sets and I guess their capacity is maybe something that we're not fully aware of. So I think that's a great example of learning about people's skill sets. It's obviously still really important that clients are seen face-to-face for particular services. How have you made those decisions and what process do you go through to ensure that clients are getting the service that they need and that it's safe?
1: So there's a couple of things. We've realised in the podiatry space, There, uh, podiatry and dental, really, um, online consulting has very limited application. So with the podiatrists, if we can get the clients on board with those self-management techniques and get them set up so we can look at the wound and monitor wound that's there. But with podiatry, it's a recognition that virtually all clients need a face-to-face appointment at the moment so we've um we've needed to create longer appointment times because the of the cleaning requirements and the PPE requirements of seeing all the clients plus um looking at spacing in the clinics you can't have the same traffic flow of clients through so people may need to wait outside until it's their time but also you've, you've got to just slow the whole pace of everything down now, interesting we had you know some of the um professions like dietitians and diabetic nurse education a lot of clients have been really effectively and happily managed using just a phone consults email based consults or video consults in fact we've got a lot, one of my lovely client stories is about a woman who is now having her whole dietetics program managed by email she's got hearing difficulties and she is loving the email consults mm, mm because that's, you know, the way she relates to life is because she's had long-standing hearing difficulties, words and reading and processing for her have been her best method of engaging. So the fact that now she's got these consults that can be, uh, so one consult might be spaced out in a couple of blocks in the dietitian's diary during the day to send the email, the woman can read it, think about what she wants, respond and get a response back. And um, she's just loved it. So just a recognition that it's not, not everybody needs a video. Sometimes actually other things are better for people. There are still some clients that really do not learn well or not engage or whatever and do need a face-to-face consult. But, you probably, but the clinician doesn't need to be in the clinic providing face-to-face consults as much as they used to. So instead of coming into work and providing clinic-based consults every day, they might come in for two half days or one full day to offer face-to-face services but will still work from home doing video, telephone and email on other days
0: i think what's coming across really strong is the idea of adaptability change and flexibility from your staff from the management in order to really support clients and ensure that they can get the type of service that they need i think it's really great to hear one of the things that we're obviously always really keen to to talk about is the care planning process and i'm just wondering how care plans have helped you throughout this or if it's changed your approach to care planning at all?
1: The care plans help to a certain extent. I'm, I think we were already on a very big care planning journey. So COVID-19 managing clients is certainly facilitated by having very good goal-directed client care plans. For our organisation, I don't know that that was a revelation because that was certainly a wheelbarrow
0: I had been very actively pushing for some time. You mentioned that podiatry clients were becoming more engaged in their own foot care. Could this relate in other areas as well or even in care planning or pre-assessment activities?
1: with the goal-directed care plans, hopefully that's where we're heading, that we actually get really the client to buy in and engage with what's important to them, given, you know, just rolling up and seeing everybody face-to-face ad infinitum is now no longer the, the safe thing to do. Um, I think we make, or we already seeing, we've got more engagement from clients understanding that there needs to be a decision about what the goal is here and let's have a look at the safest way of doing it rather than them just because it's not just about the clinicians it's also in community health there has been that that long-term culture that is both clinician and client codependent that I just roll up and have it all given to me you know this is my problem you can fix um, and that so there has been client changes in that attitude too but there's things like the ot the ot's will never go back to doing home visits the way they do they used to so a lot of the information gathering and collection of data about what might be needed getting the client to think about what they really want is being done now on the phone or via video before the appointment so that that minimizes the face-to-face time that ot has to be in there It's not only minimising the face-to-face time the OT has to be in there, it's meant that the clients and or carers have really thought about what the OT is coming out to do and what they need to let the OT know about what they
0: want. So that will fundamentally affect goal-directed care planning. That's really interesting to hear how these changes have helped to engage clients more in their care and to be, I guess, active participants. That's really what we're after in regards to wellness and reablement. So it's great to hear that that's actually happening. Do you have a story or an example from the front line that maybe you'd like to share or that really highlights this?
1: My best OT story is it's, a, it's kind of a one-off cause you, and quite a lot of planning and coordination. But we had a fellow who had a brand-new SWIP sweat- sort of mobility scooter arrived just as COVID-19 came in. He lives in a retirement village and wasn't able to get out of his home. Well, he, he's quite switched on and he had a very switched on IT savvy son that visited him and he lives in a retirement village with its own sort of street slow traffic level area. Well, but with a lot of planning, with uh, video connection, getting him to walk through the scooter and all its functions, multiple visits, he got trained to use a mobility scooter online, which enabled him to get out in the retirement village on his mobility scooter without ever seeing the OT
0: face-to-face. That's great. And I imagine it would not be possible without the expertise of the clinician And they were able to do it in a way online that wasn't compromised
1: yeah the planning she did and the whole i've collected that story and the you know the stuff that went on behind it is huge to make that a possible and safe experience but it was just you know pretty amazing
0: that it could happen and beyond obviously being able to be mobile and independent what do you think this approach enables a client like this to achieve
1: this idea of empowering you and making sure you can really look after yourself as much as possible and us being able to you know give you tools you can do that is a life skill that's really important as you age i think that's that that is the takeaway it's sort of like yeah we've got to really think differently and um you know a lot of getting people to embrace change requires a burning platform for it to happen So COVID-19 became our burning platform for change in a variety of areas and not just our clinicians and the way we work, but also our clients.
0: Deb, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your experiences going through COVID, how you supported your staff, clients and volunteers. I think the messages that you share will resonate with many who have gone through similar approaches, but I also think there's a lot of learning that others will be able to take on board and thank you for listening this has been the connecting the pieces diversity and wellness podcast be sure to subscribe and check out our website esdt.com.au for other resources and contact information and we'll be back with another episode